Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Not great, Bob. Hello, this is Josh Oakley. And this is Ian Court. This is 21st Century Boys. And we are your friends. Did you watch the new epi- the newest episodes of Black Mirror? I watched like three of them, I think. I kind of liked this season's San Junipero, the dating app one. I, I wasn't in love with that one, but it was it was fine. Like it's not as good as San Junipero because I don't think they're ever going to top that when yeah. it comes to like the actual sentimental stuff. But that one was good. There are some real stinkers in this season too. Yeah, like the Jodie Foster directed one, like Archangel. Oh yeah, I haven't like, watched that don't bother <laughs> like it's it will tell you literally nothing that you like oh like helicopter parents are bad you know um and at one point a character literally beats another one over the head with an ipad which is just like black mirror you know because <laughs> there's there's certain episodes from that show that like feel like they, sh- they would work if the show was willing to admit how ridiculous it was like, there's that episode, one of the episodes from the season, I think it was, yeah, the season that I watched, that ends with the gerbil twist. Yeah. Oh, my God. And it's oh. like, that is so silly. But, like, if, I don't know, like, I could see a way in which that worked, but the episode was, like, so dour and so self-serious the whole time that for that to be the final reveal was just, like, completely ridiculous. Yeah. I, honestly, like, that episode really annoyed me because they came up, that had maybe the best technological conceit of any of the episodes this season which is yeah. like what if we can read memories but they're hazy and subjective and you don't really know for sure if what people are remembering is what actually happened that is a way cooler idea for a black mirror episode than what they actually did like yeah complete yeah. missed opportunity yeah that one really felt like they started with the technology and then kind of just built a story around it Whereas mm. something like the dating app episode felt more like it led with the story or the narrative versus the other way around. Yeah, or even just like, obviously the dating app one is so dependent on the rules of the universe that they set up. But what they do is they actually make like two really compelling characters that you care about. And that drives the entire story. And they act, they act like human beings get inside of those rules. Whereas the guinea pig surveillance camera one it's like this person just conti- like just like one dead person, one dead body, and then they're like, "Well, guess I just gotta keep killing people," you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like that one scene from Mulholland Drive where the hitman like fails to kill the person that he was trying to kill in the first shot, and has to, like ends up just co- like collecting bodies over the course of that entire scene. But that scene is supposed to be funny, you know? right? <laughs> That's a good comparison. So speaking of phones, but too much. Uh, so I have definitely been led by not just your example, but by the media and the news and the climate in general. Because obviously, I think we might have mentioned on the pod before, I think we did when we did our best of last year, that you had left Twitter and you've recently been posting on Facebook about how you are about to leave that website as well. And I just decided, you know, after a couple of days of seeing that and, and just thinking more on it, that I was going to follow suit. And I wonder if you have gained any perspective. Because now you are just about to leave Facebook, but you've lived without Twitter for a long time and you've kind of are about to reach, you said you're going to delete Instagram off your phone. And so you're about to like reach almost complete social media blackout. And if you have any insights that have been garnered from that, that would make a good Black Mirror episode or otherwise. (laughs) It would be a really shitty Black Mirror episode. It's just like, oh, guy has to think about how he's going to find out where this concert is for like three seconds longer. You know, like guy has to sign up for mailing lists instead of, you know, going to this, the Facebook feed to find out all the articles that his friends are reading. You know, <laughs> <laughs> what if phone, but too little is kind of my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I actually already deleted Instagram off my phone, which is the only one that I feel like I'm regretting at the moment because Instagram is like actually just kind of like, positive experiences for me like oh i get to like put up a picture of a band that i'm seeing or you know the thing that i do where i post a picture of the book that i just finished or you know just kind of like it's so low stakes that 
I, I never feel like I'm giving too much of myself to it, even though I know that it's probably tracking my location and doing all the same sort of data mining stuff because it's owned by Facebook. Right. But I, I've, I've deleted Facebook off my phone a long time ago. Honestly, the only reason I feel like I need to delete Instagram is because that's become just my like way of killing time in the bathroom. And just, yeah, it'll just speed up my life a bit more if I don't have that like immediate access to it. But I don't know. It'll be really interesting to see what life is like without Facebook because that's going on over 10 years now on that website that's scary so was like the cambridge analytica stuff the breaking point for you or what was where did it turn for you that you decided like i have to get off right now yeah i mean it was a combination of that i mean i've been using social media in general even twitter less and less in the past couple months i've just had more going on in my life so facebook kind of became the the ultimate version of that where it was the website that i literally would go to out of sheer Pavlov's dog, it would just be the complete hit. Like, whereas Twitter or Instagram, I would actually occasionally get something else out of it. Facebook was just there to be the website that I plug into my phone when I open it. It didn't serve any purpose beyond that, really. So that had that snowball had kind of been rolling for a while. And then, like I said, seeing you kind of take the lead on, on pushing out of Facebook, I've seen some other people talk about getting rid of their Facebook. And then the, the Cambridge stuff just was... It really, it was just kind of the, you know, the the straw that broke the camel's back kind of situation. Yeah, again, I can't take a moral high ground off of it because, again, still use, planning to use Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. Still use Twitter currently, which has a whole host of its own problems um, that you are well aware of. So it's it's less the moral high ground than it is just kind of that being as good of an excuse as any, which is one of those things in a, a political climate where, you know, it's not the best reason to do something necessarily, but if... You know, at the same time, if that pushes enough people to finally get off it, that it collapses and it puts these people out of business, then hopefully that that still ultimately serves a, a good purpose. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel about it, too, where it's like all of the stuff that the Cambridge Analytica news cycle that we're currently in has revealed is stuff that I feel like everyone sort of already knew about Facebook, that like all these ad like apps that you would download were harvesting all your information we all know that like there's that common meme of oh my phone's listening to me at all times you know like we're all aware of this but this just serves as like a really good sort of just like eh, this is a good as good of excuse as any to just break the the silence on it this is kind of why just to give some behind the scenes stuff right now we talked about possibly discussing the parkland stuff but i think there's actually kind of a there is a parallel to everyone can be in a situation where they know that something awful is happening and they know like for example like the school shootings and gun violence it just takes like someone to step up and make a stand about it and not shut up about it to like actually push people to change and not to say that like This is literally the exact, I would not want to imply that someone deleting their Facebook is like anywhere near as courageous as what those kids are doing. But I think if you want to see a change happen, you need to be very conscious about when you decide to strike, you know, or how you decide to react to an event. And so I think that the Cambridge Analytica stuff, it's like, cool, I've always wanted to delete my Facebook for like maybe the past five years, you know? So fuck it. Let's just do it now. Let's get it over with. This is as good of an excuse as any. Yeah, and it hasn't helped that, I don't know if you've seen these at all, but they play them all the time on Hulu, that Facebook now has these commercials, which is how you know they're really in trouble because Facebook has never needed commercial, like traditional advertising before. But they've been putting out these commercials where they're saying like, they're trying to get back to their basics and and they're trying to highlight the positive things about just like seeing what's going on in people's lives and get away from false news as they put it in the, the advertisement. And it's just, seeing like that is just, it's so pathetic too. Like... Not that Facebook has had any cultural cachet as being, far as being cool in years, but like the, any remnant that it had of being a place that you want to be or that like things are happening at has just been completely demolished by just how badly they're flailing from a, a PR perspective. I wonder how long the conversation over what word instead of fake to use to describe the news that like how long was that conversation that back and forth like, yeah uh, uh like erroneous news uh, <laughs> untrue news we can't say fake false news yeah that works that, that works that works. <laughs> it's close yeah yeah I've, I've been trying to like pinpoint in my memory where did facebook fuck up like what was the the moment where uh it became clear that it was a bad website instead of a fun website to be i think it comes down to like two moments that like completely changed the direction of the site in a way that led us to the path that we're on now 
is when you could like stuff and when you could like pages. When suddenly there was that like huge influx of everyone's like fake little meme pages and that became like, you know, upworthy and BuzzFeed and all of that sort of trickled down from there. But then also when, once they got the validation game going, when it's like not only do you have your picture, but you can like it, you can like people's comments, you can react to their status, like that changes the way that people interact on your site you know yeah and that like prioritizes a certain kind of content and like doing inflammatory stuff or saying outrageous things to get a reaction from people i think that's absolutely like once that engine got introduced into social media that's where it went wrong i think think you're definitely right in the sense of when it consciously became that thing that did more ill than than good but i mean if you look at that quote that that's been being passed around a bit nowadays since the Mark Zuckerberg non-apology where like right when he created the site he had some you know this conversation came out years later where he said you know I can't believe these fucking idiots are giving me all of their data like he explicitly said something like that so like Facebook was always built on a very evil and rotten ground but I think you're right as to when it be that ground became part of its texture rather than just a behind the scenes feature i mean absolutely like these guys are all scammers and hucksters and it's like it's a very much like the most recent iteration of a classic american type of scam artist where like all these people are going to sell you dreams of like some sort of digital utopia and then immediately spin it for profit take advantage of people's ability to like trust them and to want to do one thing which is connect to their friends and family the idea that someone's like oh i'm gonna make ad money off of that is like really grody when you really get down to it not not to get on the moral high horse that we said we were trying to avoid earlier but you know we're all riding our own horses to quote Jesus and marrow so marks marks is pretty low uh, was what i'll say he's riding one of those little like shelty pony types you know no nah, fuck that he's riding a dog around he's he's got <laughs> no ground to stand on when it comes he to is high just, horses I, He's he's such a perfect avatar for all of this, I feel like. Just his his persona, his personality, everything that, that's come out from him about the past and just the way he presents himself in, in modern day. Uh, this, this person who... So I have this new guy at work that is very quiet. And the first couple times I worked with him, I thought, oh, he's very quiet, so he must be a nice guy. That, that's just that link in my mind. Or, you know, that, that he's just shy. Mm-hmm. And then I've worked with him a little more, and I realized, oh... I think he might be quiet, but also just kind of a dick. And I think Mark Zuckerberg is the perfect representation of that kind of thing where the way he hid in the shadows, he presented as shy or reclusive or the way that geniuses act and all of that. And really it was just him doing shitty stuff and selling off your data and making lots of money and being like any other billionaire, right? Like he, he sold, sold this certain persona and not just him, the movie, the you know, the, the the media all sold this specific version of who we thought he was and thus who we thought the website, what we thought the website was. And, you know, it, it is now fully coming to light that really it's just, a, a, like you said, a new version of the same dick that we've been dealing with since the beginning of capitalism. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I, I think that we're all going to... I would love a social network too <laughs> at this point. Like, as much as I'm like out on movie sequels like there's a lot left in that story at this point and i would love to get the sort of like fifth act you know of that movie where it's like the empire starts to crumble a bit be great also we haven't heard from david fincher in a while so that's true it's a good call and uh the only thing is i think even in just the cup the you know eight years since that came out i think it's going to be much harder to portray him as even a sympathetic protagonist that uh than he was in the film because he's already a dick in that movie but at this point he's just kind of a monster in real life yeah that's why it would be a good sequel it'd be like godfather 2 or something yeah that's an outrageous comparison i'm sorry (laughs) no yeah it'd be like godfather 2 the the facebook story right now is i mean hey you know anything can be a great story and uh, speaking of monsters and things that don't really get destroyed but just change over time, we're going to take a dip into the shimmer and talk about Annihilation. Annihilation. Na, 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 na. It 
it's clear that a lot of people have like a pretty strong reaction to it and i think it's sort of like the perfect emblematic thing that that sort of sums up the feelings that this movie causes is because you sort of know what it is it's this weird sci-fi sound you hear variations of it in like every single trailer for any big sci-fi movie but for some reason this one just gets right under your skin no no pun intended there's also <laughs> another great sci-fi film that does something similar but by that same name but that sound is just like ooh that really freaked me out for some reason that I can't quite put my finger on. It's uncanny. It's freaky. It's like, this is a big budget sci-fi film with like famous actresses, but there's also something else going on, you know? Yeah. It just feels completely off. And this, and for me, something I love about the, the music in this film is you have that distortion of what's become this norm in, in film soundtracking, but then, and I know this has bugged some people about the movie, but then paralleling that you have this very folksy guitar driven stuff that pops up occasionally. Mm -hmm. And the film's pretty explicit about how it uses that, where that music is pretty much contained in flashbacks or in the, the normal world outside of this mysterious bubble, the shimmer, but then it starts to kind of leak in and fade into, and as you see kind of how those two sides are both kind of getting at the same thing at, at how, this normal, these normal feelings, these normal human beings are being completely distorted and warped. Um, and I thought that was like a really fascinating thing about the score um, was that it not only had that, but it had, it gave you what, again, quote, you know, what normal music sounds like. And it, that only brought out how off and how eerie that distorted music sounded. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point to hang on is because I think that if the movie... There's like a ver there's like two other versions of this movie that could have potentially happened and this one is sort of halfway between them. Like there's the all the way crazy version where they're in the shimmer the entire time that sounds like probably what's more like the book where just everything's sort of haywire and you can can't trust any part of reality and it's all warped and weird and crazy and there's probably a lot less dialogue. And then there's also the more conventional like action film version, which is you know Natalie Portman walking around with an M16 or whatever kind of gun. Fuck it, I don't I don't care about different gun types. I just refuse to call me out on, <laughs> on Twitter if you'd like, but I'm not there anymore, so I won't fucking hear you. And so there's it kind of plays both sides of that, where there's this sort of human drama about like this you know crumbling relationship and her cheating on Oscar Isaac with the other teacher and all of that sort of more conventional Hollywood stuff. And then there's the oh, we're just going to end the movie with a dance scene, you know, with, like, some, like, performance yeah. art. And both of those kind of exist at once. And I think that if there's any real bone I'd have to pick, it's, like, sometimes it feels like the, the movie doesn't know if which one it wants to be. I know which one I want it to be, <laughs> you know? But it it's, I think it's what makes the movie unique is that it is able to go from one place to the other and back. But that's where some of the the other flaws are kind of bred from that confusion, I think. Sure, and I, I completely get that. That take on it, for me, uh, the reason I, I love the film so much is because I think those two things are, for me, you can't separate those two halves. And the thing that's great about both of them is that how they feed into each other. Um, there's this little moment in the movie. So some of the flashback stuff, I, and, and probably my biggest complaint with the film, is the, the whole cheating, the whole affair is very generic. Um, the way it's portrayed isn't very unique in and of itself when you flash back to these scenes of, of her regretful and, and all of that. And that stuff in the moment doesn't completely work for me. But then what the part of this movie that absolutely destroyed me was at the end, the last flashback we get is them sitting on the couch across from each other reading and they look up to each other and say, hey. And then that's it. And then we jump into this the, the ultimate crazy climax. And for me, that showed such an understanding of the heartache of the affair and of, him, of Oscar Isaac's character being gone all the time and eventually getting cancer. And all of that trauma only mattered insofar as there being a baseline of normalcy to be distorted, to be shooken up. And I, I think that was such an incredible moment because I think, you know, in, in the more generic version of this movie, that last flashback is their proposal or it's their wedding or, you know, it's this big thing. And to place it, it's such this minor moment and to highlight that as, because it doesn't spell this out, but my impression was that was kind of probably like one of the last times they were just together and happy before everything went wrong. And I, I think that 
going from that, and I'm pretty, because I'm pretty sure that comes right before the, like, humanoid fight dance sequence. And for me, that really gets at my, my larger point at me thinking that both of those things are completely wedded to each other. And that that normalcy and that distortion are playing with each other. And that that final dance sequence only matters so much because we get what the real world looks like. I think if we spent the entire time in the shimmer, it would mean less. Even if it doesn't hit you on an emotional level, I think it would mean less at what the film is ultimately trying to get at, which is how trauma and and heartache and all of that distorts ourselves and we're never completely the same after that. And we can kind of get that more explicitly with the twist if we want to get there eventually. What are you defining as the twist? Just okay, so yeah, I mean, I guess this is for, for anyone listening, this would be a spoiler alert. So at the end of the film, when pr it pretty explicitly, the copy of her, whatever, gets blown up in the lighthouse. Then the regular version of her, as far as we know it, returns to the real world, get, leaves the shimmer, those shimmers no longer around, returns to Oscar Isaac, they hug, they both have a, a glow in their eyes. She has this glow in her eyes. And to me, what that's saying is, I've seen some people speculate that, oh, maybe that means there was like some switcheroo at the last moment or something. And I just think that that, one, isn't great storytelling if that is what it's supposed to be, but also that it doesn't really make sense. And I don't think that needs to happen for the ending to make sense. Because I think what the ending is saying is that once this copy of her was created, there was no normal version of her left. Both of them have been changed. Both sides of her have been changed. So that glimmer in her eye at the end, I think what it gets at, I think it is kind of getting at the, the larger point of the film, which is that this losing her husband or, or her husband getting cancer and, and all of that has just completely changed her. It, it literally changes your DNA. This film makes that explicit, what, what trauma does to you, it, that it turns you into a different person and there's no going back. There's no, I can get rid of this part of me and, and get rid of the trauma and put it somewhere else and then just go back to being me. That's not an option. When something traumatic happens, it, it splits you and it rearranges you, and then you're just a different person after that forever. Um, and I think that that is really moving, and I think it's wrapped up in this completely baffling. I mean, we haven't really talked about the, the look of this film at all, but I, I'm so impressed. Ex Machina was a film I liked, but I found a little antiseptic and a little familiar with what I was getting at. And I think I'm so impressed by what Alex Garland was able to do as far as just completely completely upending his you know that was such a small limited film and this one is so expansive and the creature design I think is truly horrifying and incredible and all the spaces that he builds I think have just the right mix of mystery and horror um there's this beauty to it but but it's also just terrifying before we get uh too much deeper into describing the aesthetics of the film I do want to I think it's actually pretty clear in the movie that it is the real Natalie Portman at the end because she, at one point, you know, while she's in the interrogation at the very end of it, before she goes and meets quote unquote Oscar Isaac, she takes a sip of water and puts it back down on the counter. And when Oscar Isaac, who is the, we've clearly established as the clone, when he does that, he starts bleeding profusely. When she drinks the water, nothing happens. And it zooms in on the glass of water on the table. So I think it's anyone who thinks it's a switcheroo, I get why the movie is weird enough and the exact like framing of the last shot, it, like focusing on the sparkle in her eyes. I could see how people could interpret it as like, oh, there was some kind of switcheroo. But I think the film is pretty clear about backing up your interpretation, which is that the thing that has happened is that she has been irrevocably changed from the experience of going through the shimmer. And in some ways it's the same with her husband who's been replaced, but he's still kind of the same person. It's it, the whole thing is essentially a, you know, failing relationship metaphor. You know, these two people have gone through something together and have come out, this come out the other sides completely changed by the experience. And so I think that you're right. And I also think the film backs that up. Yeah. But I also don't think it is completely, cynical in that regard i mean right because the end hints at this idea that this supposedly horrible place the shimmer is going to be created again i mean i mean, at least that's the impression that i get and maybe i'm bringing a little of my book knowledge into that and the book and movie are completely different in many many ways but just the idea that these people have the ability to create this space again that this thing isn't dead this this thing that we think has been defeated isn't completely dead yet and so i think there's a, definitely a cynical way to read that but i i think it 
is hopeful that the line where we're not being destroyed, we're being changed, things aren't being destroyed, they're being changed. I mean, I really think that that is what the film is, is getting at, that that trauma doesn't have to be an ending thing. Um, that even if it transforms you, and even if it transforms this entire world within the in the film, it can still be not a net good, but just a kind of accept you know you know a fact and something you have to deal with and something you have to adapt to and and change your behavior in order to to deal with. But that's that's why I found the ending so good because it was ambiguous in the sense of not. Again, I agree with you that I think it is pretty explicit that that's what's happening on a plot level, but I think it's ambiguous on a or optimistic, cynical scale. Um, and for me, those are the kind of endings that I like the, the, the ambiguous endings I like the most. Like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a pretty famous one for that. And I think that that is really interesting to talk to people about just to get, I think, I don't know if it says a lot about you, but I, I think that's an interesting thing to, to look at the perspective of, of um, whether you think that ending is saying something good about humanity, whether it's saying something bad about humanity, or whether it's kind of somewhere in the middle, which is where I think it is. I do want to talk about the look of the film as well, because I think it is that's probably the, the film's greatest achievement, is just the creation of the shimmer. The, the movie really, really takes off once they step inside, once they're in this sort of overgrown, like, south. It's kind of supposed to be in Florida, but it's not made clear. But that kind of like life exploding out of everything look that is definitely true if you've been in the American South. It can really look not too far off from what the movie does, but it's able to shoot a normal landscape in a way that makes it feel otherworldly and too much and imposing and terrifying, um, but also beautiful. You know, the the thing that a lot of people would probably would point to is like the symmetrical deer with like the leaves growing out of their antlers like that's obviously a beautiful image and haunting whereas you know the scream bear is probably the, the most horrifying that it gets yeah but everything about the movie everything about what takes place in the shimmer has that sort of dreamlike beautiful but terrifying but right but wrong kind of too perfect too flawed mix of uh, of images it's it's really incredible and i think that there's a certain segment of the population that, and this is like if you're the kind of person who likes to get way too high and go watch movies this is going to be a movie that you're going to want to do that too <laughs> yeah for me i just want to point out my maybe my favorite image of the film which is besides the screen bear just because i think that that is such and i you know i don't know if i can call it iconic just because so few people saw this movie that i don't know if any part of it's going to like enter the lexicon but but for me it's the the human plants the 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 plants that have shaped themselves in human form or that were human and became plants it, it's that's another thing that, you know, we're kind of given both sides of it, like with Tessa Thompson's character. Um, and a scene I really liked, because one of my other complaints, so the thing about the book, because I've read the, the trilogy, I just finished up the trilogy, and the first book follows the film in the sense that it is all the biologist. They're not given names in the book. They're, they go into this place, it's called Area X in the book, the shimmer in the film. So it's all from the biologist slash Natalie Portman's perspective in the book, so you don't get really any real characterization of the people around her. Um, they're all kind of props, which is fine. It's like a 150-page book that does not hurt it in, in a narrative sense at all. In the film, obviously, you need to strengthen those because they're actually human beings that are walking around with her, and you're seeing them develop. And that didn't completely work for me. Gina Rodriguez, I, I've talked before about her on Jane the Virgin, I think is one of the best TV performances in of the last few decades. And here, it just feels a little off. The way that she goes crazy feels a little too easy, a little too familiar. So I don't love all of the side character characterization, but I say that to go back to the highlight, I think that last scene with Tessa Thompson really works for me. And again, it's something that's very explicit. Her her suicide attempts in the past becoming this, you know, actual like plants growing from her. But I think part of it's because Tessa Thompson there's a part of me that thinks that she might be the best actress working today, that she's able to sell kind of something else you're getting, what, what you were talking about, this mix between, it's, it's a horrifying thing, what's happening to her and the things that have happened to her in her past, but there's also this beauty and she sells that divide really, really well, I think, in that, that monologue that she gives. Yeah, I think because her monologue is sort of explicitly about that divide, too, where, you know, they're reacting to what they just seen the previous night, which is the, the screen bear. And they're they're talking about that. If the last moments of your life, you know, are ones that are terrifying, you're kind of trapped in that moment forever. And her character is deciding that she knows she's going to die there and chooses to embrace death and to 
join with it to join with the world that she's in so it's that same thing like everyone goes into the shimmer the one yeah i would agree with the, the way that the movie presents it like oh everyone who comes in here is damaged and the way that they're damaged leads to their destruction inside of the shimmer like that's kind of easy mode you know it, it's basically like a much dumber version of stalker by tarkovsky and i don't really think garland has the juice like that to try and take on tarkovsky but the one time where it really pays off is with with tessa thompson's character sort of having that moment of like reflecting on everything that they've seen and choosing the third way of joining with the landscape itself i think that's like really really goosebumps you know really powerful stuff one little detail that really bugged me so this isn't a little detail but very big scene or a very explicit scene when the I can't remember if she's the linguist. One of the characters is basically spells out what all of their flaws are. And it's a yeah. really clumsy scene. I think it's the worst scene in the movie. And I actually quite like, I don't think I've ever seen that actress before. I actually liked her as a whole in the film, but but I really didn't like that scene. And the thing that really bummed me about it was one thing I liked was the night before they leave, or right, you know, right when Natalie Portman's character decides to join them, they all sit around a table and have a drink together at the I can't remember if it's called the Southern Reach in the film, but in the book. It's just called um, Area X in the movie. So yeah, that, but the headquarters area they're at. The detail I love about that is when Gina Rodriguez brings her back to the table, she does like the beer cracking thing on the table. You can tell she's, you know, like the army veteran. She's like very tough. She hand cracks the beer on the table, open, gives it to all of them. And then she has a root beer in front of her. And I just like thought that was such in the moment when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, this is an incredible, just like woven in detail that she was that person and retains part of being that person. But and now has to deal with having over tongue that. And then they get to the monologue and they just spell it all out. And that when, it, when the film felt it had to do that was when it really bummed me out. But, but on the whole, I do think, especially once it reaches that final third, it is able to maintain a lot of that subtlety, as we can see from the way that there is a lot of argument about what exactly it means and, and what exactly it's getting at. And then I think that all crescendos in the, the humanoid dance sequence, um, which, which I didn't realize until reading afterwards, features the actress who does the humanoid is in the humanoid suits is the other main robot from Ex Machina. Oh, really? Yeah. And so she just has such an incredible physicality to her movements. And that sequence I just found so, I don't know, I thought I was really swept away by it. I, even not being able to completely understand explicitly what it was getting at. Because I do think, even if I have a reading about the film in trauma, I think still think there's more to that than that I'm completely understanding. And I want to see the film again to try and unwrap more. But I just found that particular sequence so weird and, and almost B-movie cheesy, but just straddling the line of, of where the film had been the rest of the time, that otherworldliness. And I, I just found that really, really affecting as this final massive set piece for, for what it had been building towards, because it was both intimate and large, um, which really captures, I think, everything we've seen from Alex Garland at this point. Yeah, I, th I think that that's, that's what makes the movie worth it. Like, any of the complaints that I have about how we get to that moment don't matter in the grand scheme of things because he so nails what needs to happen to really take that movie over the edge. You know, just on a sort of, like, visual level, when you first start to see the alien, at, like, after it emerges from Jennifer Jason Lee, basically from the moment where the title drop happens onward, it's like, you, we have now entered the realm of the abstract. We're like... Here we go, strap in. But then also what I love is once it gets to the point where it is the, the bio suit doppelganger alien, you can never really tell what its motives are during that entire dance sequence. And that's what makes it so disconcerting is you, is it aggressive? Maybe, maybe not. It's not really clear. Yeah. It's, you know, you have Natalie Portman trying to escape from it, but it only attacks her when she tries to attack it. It only goes for the door when she goes for the door. And then when she falls to the floor and lays down, the alien copies her movements exactly. Why? You know? And that's yeah. never really explained. It's this, it's this feeling of we, don't, we cannot understand its motivations. Is it doing it because it wants to understand Natalie Portman? Is it doing it just because it is made to replicate and it's just following the exact motions because that's what it's programmed to do? you can't really tell. And so even though the, the follow-up where it's like the, uh, the interrogation scene where, you know, she's asked like, is it an alien? I don't know. Did you know what it wanted to do? No. Like that's kind of a bit on the nose, but I think it's important to hammer that home in the text because even though it is apparent in the visuals, just to make it really clear, like we don't know what was going on in that moment. 
This is we've come up to a, to something that is beyond the comprehension of the characters, and is beyond the comprehension of of the audience, and that's that's what makes it a truly terrifying experience is that inability to understand it. No, I think that's a good point that that even if it's spelling something out there, it is spelling out the fact that it can't spell out something, um, if that makes sense. And I think that that's really cool and and something pretty unique to especially unique to to major blockbusters these days but um really to, to any can we i think we can filmmaking. say based on the fact that no one saw this movie that it was not a major blockbuster <laughs> okay intent originally intended as major blockbuster it was more of a, a block wobble you know <laughs> we started off this conversation talking about the score of annihilation and i'm guessing we're going to be touching on the score of the next film we're going to talk about and we're going to take a short break and get back with a little chat about phantom thread They are two alone, they are three together, they are four each other. Stand by the stairway, you'll see something certain. This might be a little bit of a shorter conversation just because it's been a while since I've seen Phantom Thread. Saw it right around when the new year started. And then the next day I made my top 10 films of the year list and I slotted it at number one. So um, my immediate read on the film is pretty high, just to give you a baseline. I'm mixed on Paul Thomas Anderson only by the bar, only by the, you gave me a look, only by the expectation of film dudes in the year 2018. There will be Blood I Need to Give Another Watch, Punch Drunk Love I Need to Give Another Watch. There's a couple that I'm a little shakier on than a lot, but for me, his most recent run of films, The Master, Inherent Vice, and this are so wholly exciting in that, I, this is definitely more similar to The Master in a lot of ways, but at least as far as like overall tone and feeling, though it's doing very different things, but just so exciting in that just how he's able to fashion such complete a world kind of took me a while, even though this was my favorite film of last year to fully get into it. There's that opening sequence where you're seeing this house come to life in the morning. And I was kind of bored isn't the right word, but not yet enveloped in the film at that point. But I think what makes him the reason he is so beloved and what makes him such a, a craftsman is even something like that, that in the moment didn't completely work for me. Once you get to the second hour and I'm being blown away by every single scene, your brain starts to put together how every single piece of the thing you've seen is necessary and vital and all part of a whole. And it's just, I mean, craftsmanship is is kind of an overused word with Paul Thomas Anderson, but I think for a reason. Um, I just think his films are so immaculately put together. Even something as loose as Inherent Vice, I think, has such a clear mastery behind what every single piece is doing. Um, and that's even more so in a film that is about a guy who cares about what how every single piece of something is moving. Um, and, you know, I don't know if we need to really talk about the, the metatextual stuff. I think that was kind of overblown when the film came out about how much is this him and Maya Rudolph, you know? I, I think that was a little too easy a route for some people to take in the conversation. But that's true in as much as it highlights how meticulous he is by way of how meticulous um, Woodcock is as a character. Right. I think the, the metatextual thing that's worth noting on is that it's, this is why he would find a character like Woodcock interesting is because he's someone who cares a lot about what he does and he would then put in the work to make sure that it's shown how much Woodcock cares. And yeah, I, I don't want to speculate about the relationship that, Paul Thomas Anderson of like his marriage is none of my business, you know? Yeah. And so, but this movie absolutely is a movie about marriages and work and how a relationship is sort of a, uh, a product of work, you know, and it's a, a product of power balances and it's a product of the chess game of how to hold someone's attention, how to control someone, how to, you know, it's, it's this really, it's pretty twisted. I would say um, that's, it's a sort of cynical way to look at a at relationships but it is also a very by the end of it i think what it really does say is that these people do love each other it just any sort of situation where two people are put into the same building together they do have to kind of 
find some sort of balance between each other. Like strong personalities, there's always going to be a tit for tat sort of relationship. And so that's what I think the movie is ultimately about, but it's also certainly about craft and it's about the sacrifices that people make in order to be good at something. To get to what you're saying, I think the thing I loved about this film so much is I do think that on some level it is an incredibly earnest movie about love. And it is very dense getting there. But like that last scene is to me just like gushingly romantic. I, and not even really that, not not to say it's not complicated, but it's pretty explicitly like like that where, where she's imagining this future together for them. And then he says, you know, for now I'm still hungry. And it it's beautiful. And like you say, the way it gets there is very fucked and very um, chaotic and not the way that you necessarily want your own personal romance to go. But I think the, the reason it works, the reason um, it so completely hit me, and, and I think it is my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film, is because it takes that density and it takes that complication and ends up saying something deeply human that I think most people can touch on and relate to it to some degree. And that's not something that all the films do, not to their detriment. You know, if I don't personally relate to the master, that's fine. It's still a fucking incredible movie. But I think the fact that he was able to wed his usual ideas to something that felt so human was what I found to be such an achievement um, in this in this particular work. It's a tricky one to unpack. It feels, I would agree that once you really get down to it, once you get past the instrument by which he's talking about romance, it, it is a very normal human thing. Like, sure, a poisoned omelet is not the usual means by which people fall in love. But it if you just treat it as sort of like a metaphor for there's going to be moments where he needs to be in absolute control and then he needs to give it all away. There's there's applications of that to any kind of relationship between anyone. Like any sort of person who does need to take a, like serious control over one part of their lives, you know, it would make sense that in another part of their lives they want to be completely hapless, you know? And the movie does a brilliant job of setting all of that up so early. You know, there's the way the if you have a staring contest with me, you won't win. You know, there's him talking about him trying to make the dress for his mother and falling apart and then being saved by his sister, which is then mirrored exactly when they're making the dress for the, uh, like, princess or whatever, some sort of royal family member. I don't remember the details. It's been a while since we saw this movie. And then it's not his mother that comes, his sister that comes to the rescue, but it's Alma who does. And so that's when Alma replaces the sister in his relationship. And it's it's such a, like, you're right. It, it, Paul Thomas Anderson, I, I would agree, I am not as into him as every other dude who wears flannel all the time. But I, I do think he's, cl like, unfuckable with when it comes to making movies. Like, you can't say he's bad at it. He's clearly not bad at it. Um, and, and this is just a, a product of someone who's been in the industry for this long and knows what he's doing and has worked hard to develop those skills. So I think, like, this one's not my favorite, but it's, you know, it, he's he's a master of his of his craft, for sure. I mean, and I want to get at, you know, something that I do think is important for, for this film in particular is the only reason all that works, that that complicated web and that, that really earnest finale is because of what a pleasure it is, for me at least, to take that ride. Um, you know, Leslie Manville's performance as as Woodcock's sister is just, like, one. I think one of the best comedic support, supporting performances of the last few years that the, you know, it's already kind of famous. The I, I remember the, I was so happy they actually played it at the Oscars for her reel, the uh, come at me, I will go through you and you will be on the floor. And she's just completely stoic while she just gives this, like, devastating burn to to daniel day lewis um and it's just completely brilliant um and then so so i think you have those pleasures from just all the breakfast scenes uh just so much humor baked into this thing but then also kind of the more the pleasures that you might expect more the just how gorgeous this thing is and and johnny greenwood's score which is you know honestly it's already like probably in my top five film scores ever. Um, I, I, cause I think it is truly perfect within the film. And I also for like a week afterwards only listen to it on its own. 
and uh, whenever I was listening to music and, and was just completely moved by it in every way. And that, for me, the, the, the best part of this film, my favorite scene, um, brings together a lot of those pleasures, not really the humor, but the, the, the visuals and the, the music in the scene where, the New Year's Eve scene, where you not only have the score, but you have this other music from the party itself playing just slightly underneath it in the mix. And that, sh that shot of Danny Lewis running across from upstairs at this party looking for Alma um, is just, I don't know, one of the most stirring things I've ever seen at getting at just kind of, this film was so good at making its emotions feel like these rushes. Um, and it, cause it can do that in really small ways, like when Daniel Day-Lewis is looking through the peephole at Alma during the, the fashion show, and it does it in really big ways, like that New Year's Eve scene. And it's just so good at, you know, when I say that this is more emotional and more earnest than most Paul Thomas Anderson films, it still does it in very Paul Thomas Anderson ways. It still takes those emotional rushes and, and turns them into just, like, these moments of pure cinematic expression. Um... You know, that, that shot of Daniel Day-Lewis running is so, like, the lighting and everything and, and just seeing the discrepancy between where he is, this very empty space, and this all this life going on right beyond him. Um, it's just, everything is so beautifully framed and so beautifully constructed. Um, and for me, so when, when I say that it was a surprise, it was only in that it was able to keep that craft that he does, that, that visual styling, and use it to express something that I don't often get from a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Certainly, yeah. I do want to unleash my hot take about Johnny Greenwood, which is that his last two scores for uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movies have been better than the last two Radiohead albums. Um, so I think at this point, Johnny Greenwood might be better served just being a film composer and that Radiohead might kind of be done, um, which is crazy because I remember really liking Moonshape Pool when it came out, but I, I never listened to it. <laughs> I just never listened to it. Or I, I'm definitely going to listen to the, you know, the Phantom Thread score more, which yeah. also a quick note about the Daniel Day-Lewis performance, because I, I do think it's worth discussing in, to some degree. Um, just it's interesting to me that when you think about like all of the these sort of like iconic Daniel Day-Lewis performances, you know, the, uh, in There Will Be Blood or, you know, Lincoln or uh, Gangs of New York, all the, like all these movies that he's been in, these, he's portrayed a lot of like very complex, but also, you know, men who are in power a lot of the time. And it's really interesting that he would decide to go out on a movie where he's just getting domed the entire movie. You know, <laughs> I, it's, I think a really, really cool choice of his to to not try and do the sort of bravado, big speech Daniel Day-Lewis, but instead to have, like, this way more nuanced, quiet role that in basically just him getting L's constantly throughout the entire film. It's great. I think it's a really cool choice of his. Well, and I think, like you say, it, it's not just that he uh, is constantly being dominated, but it's that a character who on the surface doesn't think he thinks he is a typical Daniel Day-Lewis character and it thinks his life should function that way and learning that that is not actually what he wants out of life. Um, and I think it's interesting, especially you bring up that point when, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson said in interviews that Dan Day-Lewis, him and Dan Day-Lewis basically came up with this character together and then he built this film around it. So that seems like almost a very explicit choice on, on Dan Day-Lewis's part, like you said, um, because he did have such a hand in, in crafting um, what might be, um, and if it is uh, an incredible uh, final performance and final role. So both of these movies that we've discussed, Annihilation and Phantom Thread, even though they come out pretty recently, um, I don't think you, you might not be able to find either in theaters anymore. Both were very great artistic achievements, but not necessarily um, box office bonanzas. But we recommend if they are still near you, uh, go checking them out. Um, and if they come to your computer, your TV, what have you, Check them out that way. Um, I think we both give the thumbs up to to both films in different to different measures. And when we get back, we're going to recommend a couple other things uh, before we say goodbye. I recently finished a book that I actually want to recommend directly to you. 
uh, as a as a person and not just to our broad audience. Although I'm sure that other people who you know are probably in similar lifestyles as us, I know that you are are not as dead set on being the doing the critic thing anymore. But I know that you're a thoughtful person who likes to express himself well. So I want to recommend "Do I Make Myself Clear" by Harold Evans. It is a book um, that is a, about writing. It's about the use of language and how uh, negative language can uh, dilute a point, or not negative language, but bad writing can dilute your point and actually make life worse. It's sometimes a bit overblown. The writer is clearly very full of himself. He was, you know, a, an award-winning editor um, for the the London Times, and you know, he's done a lot of prestigious stuff. So there's a few times where it's like, okay, dude, your alliteration is running a bit long at the moment. You can chill out, but. Overall, I think the actual, um, the material that he, he gets to in the book is, is well worth a, a read because not only is he just saying how to, how to write well, but he is showing examples of bad writing and rewriting it in such a way that you actually understand the process of editing a bit better. So if you're the kind of person who likes to express themselves in text for any purpose, I would absolutely recommend giving this a read because it will make you re-examine your craft um, and get you one step closer to... Uh, expressing your thoughts a, a bit more clearly. Cool. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I'll definitely check that out. Um, I'm also going to recommend a book, or at least the first part of a book. So after finishing, as I just said, I just wrapped up the uh, Annihilation trilogy the, that the the film is based on. Um, and I don't know if I can fully recommend that. Um, the third book kind of falters for me. But uh, so I finally got out of the weeds on that and just started a book short stories that came out last year uh, called Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado. Uh, it was a pretty big deal in the, the literary world, um, and I'm finally getting around to it. Um, and I've only read the first story so far, but it's really great, and um, it, I think it was the one that most people pointed to when they were recommending the book themselves. And the thing that's really genius about it is it's basically a feminist retelling of the kind of classic horror story where this girl has a ribbon tied around her neck, and everybody wonders, do you know, are you familiar with that story? Yeah, 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 I, I know where you're going with this, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's this, this classic horror story, um, and she uses that, uses, directly uses this, the main character has a ribbon tied around her neck, um, and it's a mystery, and it's kind of a semi-horror story, um, but it takes it in a really fascinating direction where the ending ends up being more sad than, than terrifying, and uh, it makes me really excited to read the rest of the book. Uh, her voice is really, really sharp and is able to get across kind of these broad lessons in ways that are very character-based. Um, and, um, very, at least the first one really dips into genre. Um, but yeah, I'm also, I recommend at least the first story from that, um, from her body and other parties, but, um, I'm guessing that by the time I finish it, I would hardly recommend the entire thing. Awesome. Yeah. I'm definitely looking for more books now that I'm spending less time on the internet. So yeah, right up my same. alley. All right. Well, if you are still spending time on the internet, you can find my writing at invisibleoranges.com where I am the head editor. I also have a newsletter. Uh, you can find me at tinyletter slash Ian K. Corey. The name of the newsletter is I Don't Know Why I Am Like This. And it's <laughs> mostly an exploration into figuring out why I am like this. So want to check that out. Please feel free to subscribe. And it's a good read. It really is. You should definitely do that. Uh, for now, you can find me at Wine and Pop on Twitter for who knows how long, but I'm, I'm still there right now. And I'll be posting there links to our Tumblr, uh, 21stCenturyBoys.tumblr.com, where we'll have links to anything that we talked about in the show, um, where you can find these books, any articles that we brought up. All right. So until next time, free Michael Collins.